11. Turn to John chapter 11. We'll start at verse 45, and so that can be found on page 1670 in your pew Bibles. And at the same time, once you've found that, turn with me in the back of your Psalter hymnals as well to page 100. On page 100, we'll find the Canons of Dort, one of the three forms of unity, one of the confessions that we hold to as a Reformed church that came out of the Synod of Dort about 400 years ago. And on page 100 in the back of your Psalter hymnals, you'll see that we're there in the middle of the second head of doctrine. The first head of doctrine talks about unconditional election, how God graciously elected sinners in Christ before the foundation of the world based solely on his mercy. And tonight we're going to look at the second main point of doctrine, talking about limited atonement. We'll just read Article 8 of the second main point of doctrine, but first we will read from God's word in John chapter 11. So we'll start at verses, verse 45 in John chapter 11. Hear now God's word. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. How is this man, here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. This is God's holy word. May he bless it to us. And let's turn now to Article 8 on page 100. And let's say these words of Article 8 together. For this was the sovereign counsel and most gracious will and purpose of God the Father, that the quickening and saving efficacy of the most precious death of his Son should extend to all the elect for bestowing upon them alone the gift of justifying faith thereby to bring them infallibly to salvation. That is, it was the will of God that Christ, by the blood of the cross, whereby he confirmed the new covenant, should effectively redeem out of every people, tribe, nation, and language all those and those only who were from eternity chosen to salvation and given to him by the Father, that he should confer upon them faith, which, together with all the other saving gifts of the Holy Spirit, he purchased for them by his death, should purge from them from all sin, both original and actual, whether committed before or after believing, 
and having faithfully preserved them even to the end, should at last bring them free from every spot and blemish to the enjoyment of glory in his own presence forever. People of God, for whom did Christ die? That's the question that really frames this whole main point of doctrine that we're going to be looking at tonight. That's the question that was debated at the Synod of Dort 400 years ago. For whom did Christ die? On the one side, the followers of Arminius said that Christ died for everyone. But the Synod disagreed. They said that Christ died only for the elect and that the saving effectiveness of his death was restricted. It was constrained, limited just to that group of people. And that's where we get the L of our famous acronym TULIP. We get limited atonement. And when we think about this word limited, it kind of has the danger of throwing us off, of being misinterpreted. Because when you think limited, you, you often think a limited supply, right? There's only so much to go around. You go to the grocery store, there's a limit of two on milk. There's only so many gallons of milk to go around, and so they're restricting access. It's limited. Or you might think limited in power. My phone's only at 14% battery, so I can't take it with me on the road trip and expect it to last the whole time without charging it. Its power is limited. But those kinds of limited, that's not the kind of limited we're talking about when it comes to limited atonement. Because Christ's death is of infinite value. The canons affirm that. It is, it's not limited in power or supply. Instead, it's limited in that the saving work of Christ on the cross was only for those who were elected by God before the foundation of the world. Jesus paid for the sins of the elect, but he did not pay for the sins of those who weren't elect. And this is what we're talking about when we're talking about limited atonement. To sum it up, we could say it this way, and here's our big idea for this evening. Christ died for all the sins of only God's children. This is what the canons are talking about in the second main point of doctrine, unlimited atonement. And as we consider this tonight, we're going to do so with two main points. First, we're going to look at what this means And second, we'll look at why this matters, what this means and why this matters. So let's look first at what this means, what we mean when we say limited atonement. Well, first of all, it's it's an atonement. An atonement most simply talks about the way of the salvation of the elect. God, God has chosen his people from before the foundation of the world. They are elect in Christ. And now how does that choosing play out? Because as as we see in the third main point of doctrine, everyone is born in sin because of Adam, and everyone commits sin. And so this sin needs to be taken care of for God's election to come to its glorious completion. So how is this sin taken care of? By atonement. And we see this concept of atonement all throughout the Bible, and we see it most clearly, perhaps, in the book of Leviticus, chapter 16, where where God lays out instructions for the Day of Atonement. And on this Day of Atonement, it took place once a year, there would be two goats brought forward. 
The first goat would be killed and its blood would be sprinkled on the most holy place to make atonement for the most holy place because of the sins of the people of Israel. That was the first goat. And the second goat would be brought forward and Aaron, the high priest, would lay his hands on that goat and confess over this goat all the sins of God's people putting the sins of the people onto the head of the goat, as it were. And then that goat would be sent away, off into the wilderness, away from the camp, taking away the sins of God's people so that they could remain in the presence of God. And so by these two ways, of this, these two goats, by the shedding of blood of the one and by the sending away of the other, atonement was made. By the transfer of God's sins to another, to these goats. By this substitution, the sins of the people would be taken care of. By the death of the one and the sending away of the other. So this is what atonement is. It's it's a substitute stepping into the place of the people of God and bearing the punishment their sins deserve. God is holy and just. And he will punish sin, but at the same time he is also loving And so he provides a substitute for his people that will take away the sin of their people on their behalf. But this wasn't really the goats, was it? These goats didn't actually bring atonement for the people. It didn't actually cover their sins. Instead, they pointed ahead to that one sacrifice that would take place once for all. That would actually take away all the sins of God's people. It pointed ahead to the sacrifice of Jesus. And that's what we see in our passage this evening. We see the chief priests and the Pharisees. They're looking to get rid of Jesus. And the high priest Caiaphas says this in verse 50. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people. Not that the whole nation should perish. Now Caiaphas, as he said this, he wasn't talking about atonement. As these words came out of his mouth, his mind was not thinking about this concept of atonement. No, everyone around him was worried that Rome would come in and punish Israel if Jesus was allowed to keep doing what he was doing, performing signs and miracles. Earlier in John chapter 11, what did Jesus do? He raised Lazarus from the dead. He was getting a lot of followers. Jesus was becoming very popular. And so Caiaphas suggests that they kill him. That they kill this one man in order to protect the nation from the Roman army coming in, from Roman tyranny. What Caiaphas was suggesting here was was a cold, political move. It wasn't atonement. But God had another motive behind this statement. Just as Joseph's brothers meant it for evil and God meant it for good, so too did Caiaphas mean evil with his statement, but God meant it for good. And that's what verses 51 and 52 show. It says, He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. You see, even though Caiaphas didn't mean it that way, he prophesied atonement. He prophesied that Jesus would die as a substitute for God's people. And that's exactly what happened at the cross. Jesus died on behalf of God's people. And we saw that in Article 8 of the Canons as well, about a third of the way through. 
It says this, It was God's will that Christ, through the blood of the cross, should effectively redeem from every people, tribe, nation, and language all those and only those who were chosen from eternity to salvation and given to him by the Father. As Jesus himself said, the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus endured the punishment that we deserved. His death was a sacrifice that provided atonement. It took care of the sins of God's people. And notice, too, that this is a complete atonement. It takes care of all of their sins. About three-quarters of the way through Article 8, it says that he should cleanse them by his blood from all their sins, both original and actual, whether committed before or after their coming to faith. All the sins of God's people are covered by atonement through Christ. On their behalf. Original sin is covered. Right? That sinful nature from Adam that's corrupted us all. And our actual sins are covered. The sins we commit every day in thought, word, and deed. And sins committed before we came to faith are covered. From that point when we were born to when we believed in Jesus. And sins after we came to faith are covered. We're not perfect after we believe, right? No, we still sin. And Christ's atonement covers those too. All our sins, original, original sin and actual sin, those sins we commit before coming to faith and after coming to faith, all our sins are covered by Christ. Full, complete atonement is ours by Christ's death. So sins are taken away, they're atoned for by Christ's death. But whose sins? As we said at the start, that's the debate that the canons of Dort was seeking to settle. On the one side, the followers of Arminius said that Christ died for the sins of all individuals. But yet, all individuals must then decide whether or not to embrace Christ's death and be saved by it. They promoted what they called an unlimited atonement, or a general atonement. That Christ died for everyone, it's, it's available for everyone, but then it's up to everyone to decide whether or not to actually take hold of that atonement for themselves. But there's several problems with this approach. First, unlimited atonement is disconnected from the doctrine of unconditional election, which the canons talked about in that first main point of doctrine. If it's said that the atonement of Christ is for everyone, then there's really no such thing as election. Because if God hasn't chosen a particular people for himself, then it doesn't work. God hasn't done that. Election doesn't coexist with general atonement because salvation is just put out there and it rests on our decision. So it is disconnected from the doctrine of unconditional election. Second, unlimited atonement isn't really an actual atonement. It's more of a potential atonement. Arminian followers taught that God sent Jesus to the cross to die without a fixed plan to save anyone by name. And if we logically follow that to its conclusion, then that means that the atonement might not have actually saved anyone. Right? If, if nobody believed, if nobody chose to accept it, then the atonement of Christ would actually have accomplished nothing. And so third, unlimited atonement detracts from the work of Christ. It does that by implying that his atonement wasn't actually enough to save people. 
That Jesus did his work and now it's up to us to finish it, to to bring it the rest of the way. And if we don't, then he really died in vain. And that's not really much of a savior, one, one who died for the possibility of removing sins rather than actually removing them. And fourth, unlimited atonement isn't biblical. It's not found in God's word. Now, proponents of this view argued otherwise. They, they pointed to passages that talked about God's saving work for the world. Right? Think John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But they didn't go on to read the rest of it, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This atonement wasn't provided for everyone. It was provided for God's children, those who would believe on him by the working of God in their hearts. If we read this verse apart from the rest of Scripture, it seems like Christ died for everyone in the world without exception. But when we take into account all of Scripture, then it's clear that this language of world is just talking about the breadth of Christ's atonement. Jesus died for people throughout the world. Not just Jews, but also Gentiles. Not just men, but also women. Not just freed people, but also slaves. He died for all kinds of people throughout the world. But he didn't die for every single person in the world. Instead, Christ died for a particular people. He died for the elect, those God chose in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's the biblical picture. John 10, the good, shepherd's lay, the good shepherd lays down his life for everyone, no, for his sheep. In our passage, John 11, Jesus would die to gather into one, not everyone, but the children of God. The language that scripture uses to talk about those shows us that for whom Christ died, it's very particular. This is particular language. And the canons affirm that too. Through About a third of the way through Article 8, it says this, it was God's will that Christ, through the blood of the cross, should effectively redeem from every people, tribe, nation, language, all those and only those who were chosen from eternity to salvation and given to him by the Father. The atonement is limited in this sense. It's, it's not for everyone but it's only for those who were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's what we mean by limited atonement. Not that the atonement is limited in power, that there's only so much saving power that Christ earned on the cross. If that were the case, then really only so many people could be saved. It'd it'd be like one of those giveaways at a ballpark. right? We've got 5,000 t-shirts for the first 5,000 people that come. And if you're 5,001, well... Too bad. We, we don't have any more. But that's not what the death of Jesus is like. There's, there's not going to be people turned away because he ran out of atonement. That's not going to happen. No, Article 3 of the canon say that his death is of infinite value and infinite worth. It is entirely sufficient to pay for all sins. Christ's atonement is not lacking in power. It's not limited in that way. It's simply limited in scope. Recognizing that Christ died to actually achieve atonement for this chosen particular people. Not that he died to potentially save everyone depending on their choice or not. No, he died for the elect. And because of this confusion about the term limited, some theologians prefer to call this point of doctrine definite atonement. 
And there's some value there because this work of Christ is entirely sufficient. It's of infinite value and worth, but it's applied to a very definite group of people. It's applied to God's children, the elect. So that's what we mean by limited atonement. Christ died for all the sins of only God's children. That's what the second main point of doctrine is talking about, what the canons of Dort, what the synod of Dort affirm to be biblical against the position of the followers of Arminius. So we've been over at this point what we mean by limited atonement, what it means. And now let's move to our second point, why it matters. Why this doctrine is so important, why it's such a big deal. This is where we'll spend the rest of our time this evening. Well, first and foremost, the doctrine of limited atonement is important because there is actually atonement for sin. We can't get so caught up in the debate about limited that we miss the atonement. Right? Jesus died to atone for sins. He actually provided atonement. Our sin deserves the punishment of God, the wrath of God, and yet Christ endured that punishment on behalf of sinners. Romans 5 says that Christ died for us. We've, we've been justified. We've been made right with God by his death at the cross. We've been reconciled to God through Jesus. His death on the cross actually provided atonement for sin. There is atonement for our sin. And so if you are struggling with sin, if you are struggling with the guilt of sin, you can turn to Jesus in faith and repentance. And you will find atonement. You're not going to be turned away like somebody at the ballpark. No, there is, aton- there is atonement in the death of Jesus. Now, you might be thinking, okay, there's atonement for some sin, but you don't know what I've done, right? You don't know the skeletons in my closet. You don't know the thoughts that I've had. You don't know the actions that I've done. And you're right. I don't. But I do know this. I do know that through the death of Jesus, there is atonement for sin. There is actual atonement for sins, both original and and actual, both those before you came to faith in Christ and for those you committed after you came to faith in Christ. All sins, full atonement is provided. That's what the hymn writer says. Right? Guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement? Can it be? Hallelujah. What a Savior. Yes, full atonement is available for sins. Christ died for all the sins of only God's children. And that brings us to the second point of why this doctrine of limited atonement matters. It matters because Christ is a perfect Savior. Denying limited atonement, suggesting that Christ died to potentially save everyone while actually effectually saving no one, well, that position really lowers our view of Christ. It makes him a lesser savior. It means that Christ couldn't really get the job done. That he could get it most of the way there, but but not all the way. But do you really want someone who who can get the job most of the way done, but not all the way done? That's going to leave you to finish the rest? I mean, if you ask your kids to take out the trash, 
And they go from room to room, the kitchen, the bathroom, the bedrooms, collecting all the trash everywhere. They load it up into a big bag, and they bring it outside, and then they dump it right on your front steps. So you have to take it the rest of the way to the dumpster. You don't want that. You wouldn't be happy with that if, if they only partially got the job done and you had to take it the rest of the way. Or think about it like this. If, if, someone, if you have someone building your house, and they do a really great job. They lay a really firm foundation. They, they put up the walls really nice. They even get down the nice details of a nice backsplash and a great kitchen and everything you want. But they forget to put the roof on. And then they leave you to finish the roof. Well, that's not good enough. You're, you're not going to be recommending them to your friends and family. Well, brothers and sisters, if we want this kind of job done when we're taking out the trash or we're building a house, how much more do we want this when it comes to our salvation? When our standing before God is at stake? Do you want a Savior who gets most of the job done and you have to take it the rest of the way? Or do you want a Savior who completely did it all? I know which one I'd prefer. I'd want the Savior who was actually able to fully pay for all of my sins, taking care of them completely, because if it's up to me, even just a little bit of that process, I'm going to mess it up. If I was left to finish a roof on a house, I would mess that up, but I am for sure going to mess up any part of my salvation if it's left up to me. Well, thankfully, it is not left up to us. No, Christ provided full atonement for all of our sins at the cross. He died for all the sins of God's children. In fact, that's what his very name means. That's what the name Jesus means. Matthew 1, an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph. He, he tells him not to be afraid to take Mary as his wife, that she'll have a son. And then the angel says this. He says, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus is the Greek version of the name Joshua, which means in the Hebrew, Yahweh saves. And that's why his name is Jesus, because God is going to save his people from their sins. Now, the angel didn't say that his name would be Jesus because he might save his people from his sins, or he could potentially save his people from their sins, but know that he will save his people from their sins. His name is Jesus. He will do it. And so that means, thirdly, that our atonement is secure. Our atonement is secure because we can trust in Jesus. We can trust our perfect Savior who did it the entire way. We can trust our perfect Savior, who is willing and able to fully cover all of our sins so that we can stand before God without fear. We can stand before God clothed in his righteousness. And that trust, that security, it brings us joy. Right? That's what the hymn writer says. Thy works, not mine, O Christ, speak gladness to this heart. They tell me all is done. They bid my fear depart. Because Christ has provided atonement for us and and we don't have to do it on our own. Then that means that our atonement is secure. and We don't have to worry about losing it. And we see this play more out in the fifth main point of doctrine when we talk about the perseverance of the saints. But right now in thinking about limited atonement, about how Christ died for all the sins of only God's children, we can rest secure 
knowing that this atonement provided for us by Jesus is secure. It will never be lost. It will never be taken away. If it was potential atonement where Christ made salvation possible and we had to do the rest, it wouldn't be secure at all. Right? We'd lose it. We'd mess it up. We wouldn't have it. But no, our life is hid with Christ on high. Our atonement is secure. And we will never lose it. We'll never lose it. Our atonement is secure because it's all through Jesus. It's not through us. Fourth and finally, this doctrine of limited atonement matters because it unites us as a church. Now, it can, be really, it can be thought that this doctrine really divides, right? Christ died for these people, not these people. There's a division there, and that's what you're highlighting. Well, no, that's, that's not what we're highlighting. In the first head of doctrine about unconditional election, it, it says that we don't deserve to be chosen, that we lay in the same common misery with everyone else, and it's only by God's grace that he elected us in Christ. But for those of us who are in Christ, who are elect, who have had the blood of Jesus provide atonement for our sins, we are really united together in the atonement. This doctrine unites the people of God as the church. We saw that in our passage, didn't we? Verses 51 and 52, Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. The children of God, elected in Christ, atoned for by Christ, are gathered into one. They are one. They are one in Christ. We are united together. Not because we're so amazing. Not because we figured something out that other people didn't, but because God set his love on us. God elected us in Christ. He atoned for our sins through his death and he brought us into communion with each other, into the fellowship of the saints. Now in this world, there are all kinds of things that unite people. Right? People with similar jobs, they unite together. People who support the same sports team, they unite together. People who lean one way or another politically, they unite together. There's all kinds of things in this world around which people can unite. But in the church, we don't unite around these things. In the church, there are Democrats and Republicans. There are Bears fans and Packers fans and Vikings fans. There are plumbers and teachers and construction workers. There are all kinds of different people from all sorts of different backgrounds. And yet we are united in this church, not because of those things, but we are united because of the atonement that is ours in Christ, because Christ has died for our sins. We are united as the bride of Christ. If you look at the end of Article 8, it says this, that Christ should finally present us to himself, a glorious people without spot or wrinkle. The church is united together. As the bride of Christ, those for whom he died, as his people. It doesn't matter their background. It doesn't matter the social differences that they have. What matters is that they are elect and Christ has died for them. We see this wonderful picture in Revelation 5. There John is given a vision of heaven. 
And he sees the four living creatures and the 24 elders falling down before the Lamb, before Jesus, and and they say this, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The church of God, drawn from all over the world, united because they were ransomed by the blood of the Lamb who was slain. United as a kingdom, united as priests to God only because of the atonement. You want fellowship? You want unity? You want to be a part of something? Well, all the other things in this world that unite people, they're pale substitutes when it comes to this unity that God's people have in the atonement of Christ. We are joined together, united together, and we will be for all eternity because he died for our sins and we are his. So these are just some of the reasons why limited atonement matters. There is atonement for sin. Christ is a perfect savior. Our atonement is secure and we are united as a church. Glorious truths. So let's savor them together. Let's join together in prayer and thank God for his goodness and his love that he has shown us in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for the atonement. We thank you that all of our sins are taken away by the death of Jesus on the cross. All of our sins. Sins from before we came to you in faith, sins that haunt our past, and sins that we'll commit in the future. Lord, we thank you that this atonement actually exists. That it's not just a possibility or something potentially available, but that Christ actually died for all the sins of each and every one of his children. Comfort this, comfort us in this knowledge. And please give us your hope and joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. People of God, please stand as we sing our song of response, number 439 in the blue.